up, everybody? I am Leia Burgad, and you're listening to Brain Dump, my very own podcast where we talk about neuroscience, psychology, and really all the things that go on in my busy, busy mind. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I know that we have quite a few new listeners, so thank you so much for your support. And let's get into it. So today's episode is actually inspired by the recent events surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement. This movement has become so central to our society, and I really felt a strong desire to make an episode pertaining to this movement. Now, I want to start off by saying this. As a young white woman in America, I'm really fortunate to be speaking about this movement from a position of privilege. And I also know that I have a lot of work to do still to educate myself on issues surrounding racial inequality, police brutality, and the many other injustices that black individuals and families must face every day. I'm far from being an expert on these topics, so I don't feel particularly comfortable contributing to all facets of this discussion on Brain Dump, especially at the cost of overshadowing the voices of those we should actually be listening to about these very real problems. Instead, I want to unpack one very small piece of this very, very large puzzle. That piece pertains to an argument that I've heard being brought up quite a lot recently, both as a way to justify the movement, but also as a way to delegitimize the movement by people who don't see the point. That is the idea that all of these issues and inequalities that we see today date back hundreds and hundreds of years to slavery in the United States. And what I've noticed is that a lot of people tend to kind of twist that argument around and say, oh, you're bringing up slavery, but there's no more slavery, so why are you complaining now? This was hundreds of years ago. And, you know, I'll start off by saying that's just an ignorant comment, to be completely honest. You don't have to look very deeply into the issues of our country today to see that our problems pertaining to racial inequalities date back to the systemic racism and slavery that our country was founded upon. But what I really want to talk about is this other concept that has been brought into the conversation when talking about slavery, and that is the idea of generational trauma. I think when people talk about generational trauma, they're defining it as inheriting psychological, mental, and physical stress from their past generations who have endured very, very traumatic experiences. And this has kind of turned into a buzzword, especially lately. And as a scientist, I really wanted to learn more about what studies have been done around generational trauma and how much people actually know. So this episode is really going to be all about whether there is a scientific basis for generational trauma. And if so, what is it and how does it work? So if that interests you, I encourage you to stay tuned and let's get into it. To start us off, I want to briefly go over the first study that really pointed to generational trauma having a real scientific basis and it not just being this word that gets thrown around but doesn't actually mean anything. That study was all about the Dutch hunger winter. So for those who don't know what the Dutch hunger winter is, it was the winter before World War II ended. So in 1944, the Nazis occupied the Netherlands during that time. And not only did they occupy it, but they actually diverted all the food there back to Germany. So that left tens of thousands of people in the Netherlands to starve. And naturally, there was a subset of that population that was pregnant at the time. 
And so what a lot of scientists have done is studied people who were third trimester fetuses during the Dutch hunger winter, and they found that those people inherited what is called a thrifty metabolism. So there are many different kinds of metabolisms out there. People have fast metabolisms, people have slow metabolisms. What a thrifty metabolism is, is the type of metabolism that increases your tendency to store fat. And that makes intuitive sense if you think about it, because people that are starving they want to increase their fat storage in order to not starve to death. And what the study showed is that the people that were going through that starvation period were actually able to pass on that adaptation to their offspring. And what that led to is all of these third trimester fetuses being more prone to things like diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, because unlike their parents, they weren't growing up in this starvation mode. So once again, this study showed that there was a very marked point of trauma that parents were able to pass on adaptations for to their offspring. This was back in 1944. This study has been around for a while. So in more recent years, I would say maybe the past 15-ish years, give or take a few years, scientists have started to decipher what's really going on down to a molecular level and how these seemingly intense moments of trauma are being translated down to small molecular changes which are being passed on to offspring. And this is when we bring in the concept of epigenetics. Now, epigenetics is a pretty complicated topic, and as I will emphasize many times in this episode, there is still so much to be learned. But to give you a broad definition of what epigenetics is all about, is the idea that your environment can affect how your genes are expressed. So how does it actually work? When we talk about epigenetics in school, we typically talk about these DNA chemical tags. So there's these little chemical molecules. They're called methyl and acetyl groups, but we'll just call them chemical tags. Let's keep it simple. There are these chemical tags that can attach to DNA in one of two ways. They can either attach directly to the DNA sequences and to the genes, and that will typically turn the genes off. The other way is that they will attach to these things called histone proteins. Now these histone proteins kind of look like beads and it's what DNA wraps itself around to be condensed in these tiny little chromosomes in your cells. The chemical tags can attach themselves to the tails of these histone proteins and that can either turn genes on or off. These chemical tags kind of show up in response to different environmental stimuli. Um, A popular example is stress, and that is first signaled by hormones, and that can later affect um, gene expression. That's really the main way epigenetics is talked about in school when you're first learning about it. Another mechanism of epigenetics that I actually just learned about while doing this research, and that will be pretty important for what we talk about next, is the significance of these little, little snippets of genetic material called small non-coding RNA. So RNA is different than DNA in a variety of ways. We won't get too much into it, but to give you a broad overview, what RNA generally does is that it's first copied from DNA sequences, and then it often acts as a sort of messenger to instruct the cell to produce specific proteins. It's almost the messenger between the gene and the result that the gene is trying to create. But these small non-coding RNAs are actually different. What they do is they actually sort of piggyback on the main messenger RNAs and they will either increase or decrease the RNA's function. So more or less of certain proteins are produced. So 
these are sort of, I guess, tagging the RNA, similarly to how these chemical tags are tagging the DNA or the histone proteins. And we will see that this latter mechanism of small non-coding RNAs is pretty important when we talk about concepts of generational trauma in science. So now that we kind of have a broad overview of what epigenetics is all about, let's talk about whether these epigenetic changes can actually be inherited. In other words, is generational trauma real? To give you a short answer to this question would frankly be irresponsible. Like I mentioned earlier, there is just so much that still needs to be uncovered about concepts of epigenetics and generational trauma. Particularly in humans, it makes it really difficult to know for sure because most studies out there have used historical data, and that historical data doesn't include any genetic information. So, for example, the Dutch hunger winter was looking at a historical population. There's also lots of studies around Holocaust survivors, indigenous populations in Canada, even prisoners of war um, in the Union Army. None of those included biological samples, though. So most scientists that have carried out these studies assume it's an epigenetic mechanism from a process of elimination, but no real proof is shown in these studies. The other thing that makes it really hard to know if there's a genetic component to generational trauma is that oftentimes when we see signs of what could be generational trauma, it's really hard to differentiate between genetic and social inheritances. So, for example, we wouldn't necessarily know if these traits are the result of overhearing stories of their parents' traumatizing stories and adopting these behaviors as a result of their social environment, or if the trauma is truly changed down to the parents' genes in a way that it was passed down to the offspring. So again, genetic versus social environment can be really, really difficult to differentiate between, especially when we're looking at studies in humans. So all of those disclaimers out of the way, I do want to talk about what I believe to be the strongest case so far for epigenetics playing a real role in generational trauma. This study came about um, between 2014 and 2016 at the uh, School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. This professor of psychiatry, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, she was actually looking at the children of Holocaust survivors with PTSD, but was actually able to collect genetic samples from them. And her research showed that the parents' trauma, those who were the Holocaust survivor, that trauma correlated to changes in methylation patterns. Remember, methyl groups were one of those chemical tags we talked about. There were changes in the methylation patterns among genes that were linked to stress, as well as PTSD and depression. This was a really groundbreaking study, and it had a lot of press around it, both positive but also really negative. And one of the main criticisms was that it was a really small sample size. There were only about 32 Holocaust survivors that were studied in this research. Um, the other thing is, similarly to other studies that I talked about, their historical samples. Ideally, you would want to study populations in real time instead of looking backwards. Also, this is just a correlation and it doesn't really show step by step how all of this goes down in DNA. 
So since that study, even though it was just a few years ago, there have been a lot more efforts into researching what is really going on down to a molecular level when we talk about generational trauma in humans. And most studies now are actually pointing more towards small non-coding RNA instead of changes in DNA tags. So far, this has been better studied in animal research, particularly mice studies, and these studies have actually zeroed in on the epididymis. And for those who have not really had sex education recently, the epididymis is the tube near the testicles where sperm cells are stored and where sperm learn to swim before they go and do it out in the real world, I guess. Um, But yeah, so they've been looking at the epididymis and uh, what they find is that this tube actually produces a lot of these small non-coding RNAs and they get shipped to the sperm as the sperm develop. And so because we know that epigenetics can work through small non-coding RNA, the fact that it's happening in the epididymis right before potential ejaculation shows that this could be the real way in which epigenetic changes are passed on to offspring. So again, this research is relatively new and it's mainly been done in animals. However, uh, there has been one study that has begun to show a little bit of overlap in humans as well. This study comes out of the University of Zurich and it's a study that is currently still being done, I think, in children's orphanages in Pakistan children whose parents often underwent traumatic situations and uh, had to be forced to give up their children. And this study has found a lot of similar small non-coding RNA alterations that they were able to measure in these mice studies. So again, this is very new. There aren't any definitive conclusions yet. But since that original study conducted by Dr. Yehuda, this alternative explanation for generational trauma has been popularized by a lot of scientists who were originally skeptical about that Holocaust study. So where does this leave us in terms of the original argument I brought up surrounding Black Lives Matter and slavery? So when it comes to African-American slavery in particular, the multi-generational impact of slavery has been less directly studied, unfortunately, especially when we're talking about genetic studies. But like I mentioned earlier, there's also a very social component to trauma being passed on, and there's absolutely no question that when it comes to social inheritance, experiences of discrimination, alienation, trauma have been passed down through generations in the African-American population. If you think about it, the civil rights movement only ended a little over 50 years ago. So to think that all of these hardships are long gone is just a ridiculous statement. And that's not to say that since then, all of our problems have disappeared. Like I tried to express at the beginning, there is still so much of this discrimination and trauma going on today, just as it has been going on for generations and generations. And unfortunately, this stress is so deeply ingrained in these populations' social environment and maybe genetic environment. Again, there hasn't been that much research there so far, but the resulting stress, it just can't be remedied with medications and therapy most of the time. It really requires a deep social environmental change. And fortunately, there's actually a little bit of science out there that shows that 
these deep environmental changes can have a really positive effect on populations who have experienced a lot of trauma. This study, which actually also came out of the University of Zurich, showed that traumatized mice that were raised in enriched environments, so as opposed to really bare, isolated cages with nothing stimulating, these cages were super awesome, had tons of toys and things to really engage the mice. Those mice that were originally traumatized, they didn't pass off any symptoms of trauma to their offspring. And so to quote one of the researchers from this study, environmental enrichment at the right time could eventually help correct some of the alterations which are induced by trauma. Again, this is a mice study. There are a few other studies out there that are similar, but all of these can suggest that epigenetic changes are reversible and really have the potential to change the narrative around generational trauma. So to wrap things up, like I've mentioned before, there are still a lot of unknowns around this topic, but because I feel like it's so relevant to everything going on right now, I really wanted to make this episode to explain to you guys what was out there so far and also to show that there is a little bit of hope out there in regards to generational trauma, specifically around the fact that dramatic environmental changes could reverse potentially damning genetic changes caused by trauma. That was really all I had for today's episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. And if you want to continue supporting the podcast, I would love for you to subscribe. And also if you could leave a review, that would be super fantastic. It would help out a ton. And we also have both a Facebook and Instagram now. You can follow us at braindump.podcast and I will be posting on there and giving you guys updates on new episodes. So I would love to see you there and engage with you on those platforms. So that was it. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today and I will see you guys next time on Brain Dump.